So over Thanksgiving break, uh, I was watching a movie with my mom. Uh, and it, the movie is called War Games. And I, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. Uh, it was originally released in 1983. And it's about a kid who accidentally hacks into a military computer system uh, and almost starts World War III. Um, now, I had seen this movie before, but for me, it's always fun to watch some of these older movies where they're trying to dream of, like, future technology. Because I, I very much have grown in the technological age and have seen what computers can do and have become. And so to watch a movie where the main computer is the size of a room uh, is really entertaining to me. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you haven't seen this movie yet, I am going to spoil it. And so I don't feel too bad, though, because, again, it was released in 1983. Uh, so you, you snooze, you lose, unfortunately. Um, but the premise of this movie is that the military was setting up a, an artificial intelligence to give them the best live strategic moves to make in the middle of a battle. So they taught this, this computer simple strategic games like checkers or chess. And they got to the point where the artificial intelligence began to teach itself how to think strategically. That it would figure out the best way to win a game. Now, they spent this whole time teaching it the correct path to victory and so when our young Matthew Broderick, who stars in the film, accidentally has it play a game of global thermonuclear war, it begins to have issues distinguishing between a game and real life. And so as it's trying to figure out how to win nuclear war, it starts to actually launch nuclear weapons at Russia. And so we get to the climax of the film, and they're trying to figure out what to do and how to stop this computer from going ahead with this missile attack. And what they figure out is the issue is that the computer hasn't learned the lesson of futility. That it hasn't learned the lesson of futility. That some games are not worth playing. That some games are not worth playing because both sides, if they know what they're doing, no one will win. And so they're trying to figure out how to teach this complex computer how to learn this lesson of futility. And you know how they do it? They have it play tic-tac-toe. I'm sure you've played tic-tac-toe at some point in your life. Uh, it tends to not be a very popular game because, again, once everybody learns how to play it, nobody wins and it ceases to be fun. And so, you know, it doesn't quite have the prestige that something like chess might have. But because a winner is never found, it becomes a game of futility. And so in the end, the computer learns this lesson, and it, it learns that there's no way to win in nuclear war, according to the movie. There's no way to win, just lots of losers. And, and so after this, it stops the game. But I, I thought about this, this idea, this lesson of futility. Because there's things in life that seem futile at times. There's a lot of things in life that seem futile at times. For me, it's making the bed. That just seems like the most futile effort ever. I don't know if anybody agrees with that. Um, but yes, like, you know, I, I wake up and yes, the bed's a mess. And you know what? I'm going to jump back in it at night and sleep in it, whether it's a mess or not. <laughs> um, and so it becomes this thing where it's like, oh, do I have to do that? Like, what's the point? 
And there are, there's other things in life that seem futile at times. And, and the passage I want to look at today has to do with teaching us the lesson of futility. Teaching us the lesson of futility. So if you would, you can turn with me to the book of Romans. To the book of Romans, and we'll be looking at chapter 8. I'll give you a second while you turn there. We'll be starting in verse 1. Romans 8, verse 1, and starting there it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You see, there, there's a number of purposes to the law of the Old Testament in the Bible. You know, one of the main reasons was to give us a better understanding of how to grow better in our relationship with God and with those around us. We know this because when Jesus was asked to sum up the law, he said it was to love God and to love others. So what we can do is that if we take all the different laws, we can separate them out and say, hey, this one helps me love God better. This one loves, helps me love people better. And we could do that for every law. We could go through because that's one of the things that it helps us do. Another point of the law was to give the Israelites a way for God to be closer to them. We've talked about this in communion for the last couple weeks. Unfortunately, the law could only do so much, and so God's presence was relegated to the back of a tent or to the back of the temple. But there's another thing that we can learn from the law. Something that we can learn is the lesson of futility in trying to be perfect. The lesson of futility in trying to be perfect. You see, the law was extremely detailed. There was 613 laws for the, the Israelites to live by. Now, some people, they took this into the extreme. They added their own additions to the law. They tried to make others believe, hey, I'm, I'm living this out perfectly. What are you doing? And to them, it had become about the game that they were trying to win or achieve the highest score in. In the Gospels, we know these people as the Pharisees. And there's a reason that Jesus was constantly annoyed by them. And it's because they had missed this point of the law. They viewed it as something that they could win. They viewed it as something that they could fully accomplish instead of learning the lesson of futility. The lesson that we see here in Romans is saying that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us could win this game. In fact, by making one mistake, you have equally failed with everyone else who has tried to be perfect in the game. It makes me think of bowling, right? There's the perfect game in bowling if you can bowl a 300. Has anyone ever done that? Anyone? One? Yeah, okay, impressive. I have not. I, I enjoy bowling. I could barely break into the 200s, though. But to get a perfect uh, game in bowling, you have to... It's like 13 strikes in a row. 
I don't know about you, I struggle getting one sometimes. <laughs> but the thing about it is, if you're going for that perfect game, and you miss that one strike, none of the others really matter. That, that game becomes futile because you missed it. And you see, it's the same here. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, whether we've made one mistake or whether we've made a thousand mistakes. We can't accomplish this game. There's nothing that we can do to earn our own salvation. So what's left? What do we do? We have to come to the understanding that we need a Savior. We need someone to come in and do the impossible for us. And this is one of the major things that the law is trying to teach us. Our need to be saved. We need someone to help us because we have all failed. And this is the beauty of the gospel message. Because the gospel is the story of a person coming in and doing just that. They lived out the law perfectly, owning earning their own righteousness. And then in an act of complete selflessness, they decided to bestow that righteousness upon us. Not because of anything that we've done, not because we could ever earn it, but merely out of pure love for us. If you would, skip, skip down with me a little ways to verse 14 in that same chapter of Romans. It says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, in our need for a Savior, Jesus came to this world to fill that need. It is through Jesus that we have been made heirs to what he has achieved because he has adopted us. The victory that Jesus achieved over this world is now something that we get to share in. The victory over the enemy of God is something that we now get to share in. A life in eternity with God is now something that we get to share in with Jesus. But another part of this that we sometimes grumble about is that part of this sharing is that we also share in the sufferings of Jesus. You see, here in the book of Romans, being a Christian was not something easy. Christians were being murdered for their faith. I mean, this would be something that would carry on for centuries at this point, but we have been extremely blessed here in the U.S. That, you know, that not only is being a Christian somewhat easy, but for the most part, it's been a part of our mainstream culture. The people listening to the words that Paul has written here are living in a world where the next day a soldier might knock on their door, arrest them, and drag them out for execution unless they denounce their faith. This is the constant world that they are living in. Every day is full of unknown and fears for what's to come. 
But what we see Paul saying here in Scripture is that these Christians, they boldly lived out their faith. They didn't let what was coming, what they might come, what might happen, get in the way of what they needed to do. And they lived out their faith, and God added to their numbers daily. Eventually, their faith would even reach the Caesar of Rome, and Christianity would become the religion of the whole Roman Empire. And because in the midst of the adversity, these Christians were strengthened by God and by people like Paul who stood firm in their faith no matter what came their way. And it is because of people like this that we have the church that we do today. Something similar to us is that our days are unknown. I don't know what will happen tomorrow. Yesterday, I didn't know I was preaching today. Yes, our country has been built on some Christian values. And and there's nothing to say that will always be the same. And you know what? It's okay. Because we can persevere through that. Because God has given us the strength to boldly have faith in the midst of adversity. That no matter what comes our way, we have God on our side. Continue with me in verse 18. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. Again, we have to look at these verses from the lens of the people originally hearing them, what this means to them. And what Paul is saying is that no amount of pain or suffering, no amount of persecution, no amount of what we might face in the world is worth renouncing their faith. It's not worth it compared to the eternal glory gained from God. That the temporary anguish we might face on this world today is just that. It's temporary. And that we are not alone in in looking forward to the hope of Jesus coming again someday. That says that even creation itself is excited for Jesus to come back. That our entire world is looking towards this one event. And it's going to be beautiful. And it will be far better than anything and far worth anything we have to go through in this life. And, And the last part of this chapter is the whole reason I wanted to look at this chapter in Romans. Uh, This last section, it reminds me a lot of like a general's pep talk before a battle. Maybe you've, I'm sorry, I like movies, so I use movies a lot as illustrations, but maybe you've seen the movie Gladiator, and there's the opening scene where they're getting ready to go into battle, and and Maximus is is getting his troops ready, and you know, he's telling them, hey, imagine where you want to be after this battle, and it will be so, and he's getting them excited, and he's giving them courage to go out and to fight the good fight. And as I read this last section in Romans, this is what I hear Paul doing for the, Rome, the Christian Romans here. 
as he is giving them a battle cry, that he is giving them something to be excited about. He is giving them courage to go out and to face the world with strength and courage because God is with us. And so I want to read this last section. And I'm going to do my best to make it seem like a general rallying his troops into battle. And so if you would, you can read along with me, starting in verse 31. Here's what Paul says. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he also not, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is not God, it is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. church. That is our battle cry. Yes, going out into the world, leaving this place, is going into battle. It is not only a battle for us to maintain our faith in a world that more and more every day is trying to get us to give it up. It is a battle to win the hearts of those around us who have yet to see the truth of God. It is a battle for those who are stuck in suffering and see no way out and they need the hope and the deliverance that God offers. It is a battle to stand firm together, side by side, knowing that we are in this together and that tearing each other down only hurts the kingdom of God. Church, you are not here today by accident. It is not a mere coincidence that you have come to know God and that the truth he offers God has been relentlessly pursuing you your whole life because he loves you and because he has a purpose for you. And that purpose does not stop on the day that you are baptized, but rather you start fulfilling your purpose the day that you are baptized. That again, you are not here by accident, but God has placed you here. That he has put people who are in your life there intentionally that he has called you to love your community and the people within it that with such a passion that won't stop until every single person has had a chance to hear of the grace that God offers. Church, you need to understand that the leadership here, we don't just want people to come here on Sunday mornings. We want the people to join us in heaven. We want to see them standing beside us the day that Jesus comes back. And that takes more than just getting them to come to church on a Sunday. It takes more to walk through someone with their faith. 
than just to get them here. That journey is a long one and it is a process, but it is worth it. We all need people in our lives at times to walk us through things. I've been fortunate in my life to have some amazing people encourage my faith and to walk alongside me in my walk with God. My parents got me to church every week. They encouraged me to pray and to read my Bible and to invest in my relationship with God. My youth leaders growing up when I was in school, they were my aunts and my cousins. I had the blessing of attending camp in the summer and making lifelong friends. I made a friend in third grade, and he is still my best friend. We were roommates in college, and he's now the youth minister in Logan, and we get to do youth ministry together. I got to college, and I had amazing professors and faculty who walked me through these beginning years of ministry. Many of you know Mike, who is here. He was not only one of my professors, he was my advisor all four years, and I worked as his TA before I came here to work with him for a number of years. Josh, who is the pastor now, I got to intern under him for two and a half years at the church that he was last at. And this coming June marks my five-year anniversary of being here in Whiting, which is crazy to think that it's been five years already. But I know that What I've achieved in ministry is greatly thanks to the people of this church who have been faithful in helping mentor me and walk me through these first years in ministry. I have been blessed with people, and I'm sure if you think about it, there have been people that have blessed you that have gotten you to the point where you've sat in this room. But my my goal with my students, one of the reasons that I became a youth pastor is because growing up I saw a number of my classmates, a number of my friends who didn't have the fortunate family that I did, who didn't necessarily have the people that were walking beside them throughout their younger years. And so my goal as a youth pastor is to make sure that any student who comes into this church and any student that I can meet knows that they have someone in their corner who is fighting for them, who is willing to walk with them with whatever comes their way. Because at times in life, that's just what we need. We need someone in our corner. We need someone willing to help us, to love us, to show us what to do. Hopefully you've had people like that in your life. But think about who God has placed in your life. Not just those who have been a blessing, but those who you are designed to be a blessing for. Who is it in your life that you need to be in their corner? that you need to be the one to walk with them, to encourage them, to show them what God has done? Who is it that you see every day that needs a person like that? Because here's the thing, church. All battles come to an end at some point. Even the hundred-year war eventually came to an end. It was somewhere around a hundred years. Someday, Jesus is coming back. Who do you want to make sure is standing beside you when that happens? Who do you want standing there with you when Jesus comes and the battle ends? Because we can't let anything stand in our way of reaching these people. But here's the thing with that. Just like we read, our battle cry 
if God is for us, who can stand against us? Will you pray with me? Dear God, I thank you for your son. I thank you that he came into this world and did what we couldn't. That he filled our need for a savior. And he has brought us freedom from sin and death and that if we put our faith in him that someday we get a share in the victory, we get a share in the glory with him in your presence forever and all eternity. And the question for us now, God, is who have you placed in our life who needs, who needs to be there standing beside us? Is it our neighbor? Is it a family member? Is it someone we work with? Who is it that you have put there for us to love, to be in their corner, to walk them through their faith, to make sure that they are developing and, and, and investing in their relationship with you? God, we might live in small communities, but that does not mean there's a small need for you. No, there is always a giant need for more you, God, to come into our lives, to continue to walk with us, to give us strength that no matter what comes our way on this world, to know that we can face it, that it is temporary compared to what we get to be a part of someday. God, help us keep this battle cry in our heart that you are for us, which means nothing can be against us and nothing can separate us from your love. I thank you for every person that is sitting here this morning. And I know that you have been pursuing them their whole lives and that you have a purpose for them and that there are people in their lives that they need to reach out to. I ask you to help them have the courage to do that to step out in faith once they leave this building and to love those people so that this church can reach its mission to help people find and follow Jesus, to create Christ-like communities one neighbor at a time. Help us do that, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.